I've been watching a lot of NCIS lately. NCIS is one of a gazillion crime shows on TV. And every episode begins with some version of, all right, grab your gear. We got a dead Marine. And the lead agent, a man named Gibbs, will throw up a set of keys into the air. And the other three agents will jockey and hustle and push each other out of the way to see who catches the set of keys. In other words, who's going to drive. And then they have fights over who's going to ride shotgun. And yes, (laughs) yes, they're adults. When you were a kid, when you were a kid and you were driving in the car with just one parent with your siblings, who got to ride in the front seat? Was it always the oldest? Did you have to take turns? Was there ever conflict about who got to ride shotgun? When you're in high school, when you're in high school, I'm going to tell you that seniors are supposed to have priority over all other classes on the stage when it comes to musical performances and on the field when it comes to basketball, football, seniors are supposed to have priority. When, when you're on the job, uh, when you're on the job, the people who have worked the hardest and the longest, with an emphasis on the longest, they're the ones who are supposed to get promoted first. So, so what happens What happens when the youngest kid in the family gets to ride in the front seat over and over again? What happens when a sophomore who shouldn't even be at prom gets crowned prom queen? What happens when the guy or the gal who's only been working three months gets promoted over the guy or the gal who's been working there for five years? You know what happens? Conflict. Conflict happens. Hurt feelings, anger, resentment, verbal arguments. Sometimes folks get so worked up that they even try to change the outcome. They'll pull that younger sibling right out of the car and throw them onto the pavement. They'll circulate a petition on Monday morning stipulating that sophomores are just, sophomores should be ineligible to be prom queen. Sign here, sign here. For the month of April, we've been focusing on the virtue of peace. And I want to remind you that Jesus gives us peace. Jesus gives us shalom. And and shalom has two parts to it. The first part is right relationships. Jesus gives us shalom in our relationship with God, in our relationships with others, and in our relationship with ourselves. And then Jesus gives us shalom in the sense that he, he makes us whole. There's this process of being made whole, being made complete, no longer being broken. But let's be honest, Jesus also said, in this world you will have trouble. You will have trouble, you will have conflict. Anytime there are two or more people, there's gonna be conflict. Just. Look at the opening pages of the Bible with Adam and Eve. Well, she practically shoved it down my throat, Lord. Some helpers she turned out to be. Look at Adam and Eve's kids, Cain and Abel. Look, today, today I want to challenge you to choose peace in the midst 
of relational conflict. I want to challenge you to choose peace in the midst of relational conflict. Now, peace, as we're defining it this month, is proving you care more about each other than winning an argument. And sometimes, sometimes you can show that you care more about others by walking away from a fight. Choose peace in the midst of relational conflict. Now, today, I want to peer into the life of a man named Isaac. Isaac is famous because he's part of that phrase that's used over and over again in the Old Testament. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here's what you may not realize. Isaac's father, Abraham, he gets numerous chapters in the Bible. Isaac's son, Jacob, he also gets numerous chapters in the Bible. But Isaac himself, Isaac himself gets just one chapter, Genesis chapter 26, and it is a chapter full of conflict. We're going to we're going to take this section at a time, Genesis chapter 26, verse 1 and following, a severe famine. A severe famine now struck the land as it happened before in Isaac in Abraham's time. So Isaac moved to Gerar, where Abimelech, king of the Philistines, lived. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Don't go down to Egypt, but do as I tell you. Live here as a foreigner in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. I hereby confirm that I will give all these lands to you and your descendants, just as I solemnly promised Abraham, your father. I will cause your descendants to become as numerous as the stars of the sky, and I'll give them all these lands. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I will do this because Abraham listened to me and obeyed all my requirements, commands, decrees, and instructions." So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Isaac, Isaac is a foreigner living in a foreign land at a time of famine and drought. His household, his servants, his cattle, his flocks and animals are not Philistine peoples and are not Philistine animals. And he's looking for pasture for his flocks and water for his flocks, just like the Philistines. Only Isaac is a foreigner in their lands. Isaac spoke a different language. Isaac was circumcised. Isaac's God was not their God. Isaac was an outsider. And yet God says, I will be with you. I will bless you. But something interesting happens next. And that's verses seven and following. When the men who lived there asked Isaac about his wife, Rebekah, he said, oh, she's my sister. He was afraid to say she's my wife. He thought, they'll kill me to get her because she is so beautiful. But sometime later, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of his window and saw Isaac caressing Rebekah. Immediately, Abimelech called for Isaac and exclaimed, she's obviously your wife. Why did you say she's my sister? Uh, because I was afraid someone would kill me to get her from me, Isaac replied. 
How could you do this to us? Abimelech exclaimed. One of my people might have easily taken your wife and slept with her, and you would have made us guilty of great sin. Then Abimelech issued a public proclamation. Anyone who touches this man or his wife will be put to death. Abimelech is outraged by Isaac's lie. Isaac, Isaac does the same thing his father did. Oh, oh, that woman with me? Uh, yeah, um, uh, sh- uh, she's my sister. He did the same thing. That was the same lie that, I, that Abraham did. It's a lie that's born out of fear, and it's a lie that reveals a lack of confidence in God's ability to protect him. Can we just agree that Isaac's got issues? Isaac's got issues, and Isaac's got family dysfunction. He is not a perfect man. He's not even a godly man. But, but God made promises to Isaac and God keeps his promises regardless of what Isaac does here in some ways, right? God keeps his promises and that's good news. So verse 12 and following, the conflict really comes to a head. When Isaac planted his crops that year, he harvested a hundred times more grain than he planted. Keep in mind, this is during a famine. For the Lord blessed him. Isaac became a very rich man and his wealth continued to grow. He acquired so many flocks of sheep and goats, herds of cattle and servants that the Philistines became jealous of him. So the Philistines filled up all of Isaac's wells with dirt. These were the wells that had been dug by the servants of his father Abraham. Finally, Abimelech ordered Isaac to leave the country. Go somewhere else else he said for you have become too powerful for us so so God has blessed Isaac supernaturally that's this hundredfold harvest that Isaac gets that no one else we're assuming in this Philistine area is getting and Abimelech and the other Philistines they see this divine blessing Uh, Genesis chapter uh, 26 at the end of this chapter in verse 28 they say to Isaac we can plainly see that the Lord is with you so we want to enter into a sworn treaty with you we can plainly see the Lord is with you so so Isaac is so prosperous that like Abraham and Lot when they had to separate and spread out because they had so many cattle and sheep Isaac is so prosperous that the Philistine king, this this tribal leader, really at this point, tells Isaac, go somewhere else. But the Philistines fill up all Isaac's wells with dirt. What's going on with the wells? Why fill wells up with dirt at a time of famine and drought? Well, in the ancient Near East, Digging a well was tantamount to a claim of ownership of the surrounding land. So to own a well and to possess the surrounding countryside were the same thing. So Isaac's well or Abraham's well is saying this is Isaac's countryside. This is Abraham's 
countryside. So when the Philistines fill in these wells, they're disputing this claim. They're saying, oh no, this ain't your land. You can't sit in the front seat. Now keep in mind that there's a famine going on and Isaac is doing well. They probably aren't. Water is precious and yet they fill in these wet wells because they're unwilling to negotiate sharing them. They can't concede that Isaac has any right to own this land or be there. Well, it comes to a head in verses 17 and following. So Isaac moved away to the Gerar Valley where he set up tents and settled down. He reopened the wells his father had dug, which the Philistines had filled in after Abraham's death. Isaac also restored the names Abraham had given them. Isaac's servants also dug in the Gerar Valley and discovered a well of fresh water. But the shepherds from Gerar came and claimed the spring. This is our water, they said. And they argued over it with Isaac's herdsmen. So what does Isaac do? Pay attention. So Isaac named the well Essek, which means argument. Isaac's men then dug another well, a separate well. But again, there was a dispute over it. So Isaac named it Sitna, which means hostility. Abandoning that one, Isaac moved on and dug yet another well. And this time there was no dispute over it. So Isaac named the place Rehoboth, which means open space. For he said, at last, the Lord has created enough space for us to prosper in this land. Three wells he digs, Essek, Sitna, and Rehoboth. Essek meaning argument, Sitna meaning hostility, the same root word, by the way, for Satan, Sitna, and then Rehoboth, which means open space. Jealousy, the jealousy of verse 14, erupts in these verses into open hostility open hostility and the church should respond amen jealousy becomes hostility preach it pastor if a younger brother gets to ride in the front seat over and over again the older brother is going to get jealous and jealousy erupts into what arguing and hostility notice each time Isaac walks away from a fight he doesn't press his claim or his right to the wells. He doesn't say, well, this is my father's well. This, this belonged to Abraham. You filled it in. You had no right to do that. This is mine. No, he doesn't do that. He could have fought the Philistines, but he didn't. Isaac walked away. There are a couple of things I think we can get out of this. One, Isaac refused to focus or dwell on how he was mistreated. And then Isaac probably understood that success makes enemies. Isaac probably understood that success makes enemies. If you're a sophomore and you're crowned prom queen, come Monday morning, you're gonna have enemies in that high school. Uh, success, again, success breeds enemies. If you are the three-month guy and you're given a promotion at work, you're gonna have conflict in the office. So Isaac chooses peace in the midst of relational conflict and he keeps finding water at a time of great famine. 
And that all culminates in verse 28. The Philistines say to Isaac, we can plainly see that the Lord, and, and the word used here is the, the word for the God's name, the Lord, Isaac's God, the Lord is with you. So we want to enter into a sworn treaty with you. Let's make a covenant. The very thing that God promised Isaac is evident to the Philistines, and they want in on it. So, so what does Isaac do? That's verses 30 and 31. So Isaac prepared a covenant feast to celebrate the treaty, and they ate and drank together. Early the next morning, they each took a solemn oath not to interfere with each other. Then Isaac sent them home again, and they left him in peace. They left him in shalom. So let me ask a couple of questions. Question number one, who are you at odds with right now? In your relationship networks, who are you at odds with right now? Who is that person? What's their name? Who are they? And then secondly, are you fighting? Are you contending? Are you contesting? Are you arguing anywhere right now in your life? And How's that going? Let me suggest some ways to take this home. And these are four suggestions that I'm taking from Chip Ingram, by the way. The first is this. Address the problem relationship in the next seven days. Address the problem relationship in the next seven days. That person that you thought of when I asked, who are you at odds with right now? Sit down and talk. Schedule an appointment. If you need to, see a therapist. Don't send them a text message. Don't try to resolve this through email. Sit down and talk and see if you can work it out. Paul, the apostle, says something very, very important in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. Romans chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. He says this, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. And here's the kicker. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. It's actually two Greek phrases, and the Max translation is really simple. If possible, as far as it depends on you. If possible... It's not always possible because, right, you can't control other people. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That means your mother-in-law, your coworker, your sister, your brother, that very person that you're at odds with right now. Address the problem in the next seven days. Secondly, re-evaluate your expectations. Re-evaluate your expectations. When it comes to conflict, there tend to be rescuers and warriors. Your pastor is a rescuer. Max Vanderpool is a rescuer. Rescuers are, we can figure out a way to work this out. We can find a win-win. Let's hold hands. Let's not fight anymore. Rescuers want to end the conflict. Sometimes they want to avoid conflict altogether. But rescuers are all about living conflict-free. Warriors, on the other hand, warriors are the ones that are like, I want justice. Oh, I'm going to, they are going to know that 
I am right in this thing right here, right? Okay, warriors are ready to go to battle when it comes to pressing their case and winning. Oh, they're gonna admit they're wrong. I'm never, right? So rescuers and warriors. And so here's the thing. Here's the thing. If you're married, chances are, if you're a rescuer, you married a warrior. And if you're a warrior, you married a rescuer. <laughs> God has a wonderful sense of humor, doesn't he? <laughs> but when it comes to the fact that we're different in how we want to handle conflict, you got to adjust your expectations because it's not going to play out the way you think it will in your mind. If you're a rescuer working with warriors, it's not gonna end in the whole harmony, everybody's holding hands, singing kumbaya, the way it plays out in your mind. And if you're the warrior, it chances are it's not gonna end up with them just, oh, you're, I'm so sorry, you're right, I should have never, like they're not gonna give the speech that in your mind they gave you as you were driving angrily down US 27. So reevaluate your expectations. Third, sometimes, you need to get competent outside help, particularly when it comes to relational conflict. Sometimes you need to get competent outside help. If every time you try to resolve conflict, if every time you try to make peace, it gets worse, there's a signal that maybe you need some competent outside help. Often, Often marriages need a little help. They need a little help with conflict. They need a little help with communication tools. And the wife will say, I believe we should go. And the husband will say, well, you can go if you want, but I'm not. No, 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 no. Men, I want to talk to you men for a moment. Look, think about it. If that relationship, if your relationship with your wife goes south, you lose 50% of all wealth right there on the spot. Actually, most of the time, divorce translates into bankruptcy, so you lose everything. Financially, it makes no sense for you not to invest in this relationship. Why would you shoulder that kind of risk? And listen, I get it. If you're a man, going into a therapist's office is a threatening environment because you're afraid of what might come up. But here's what I've discovered in, in a long time of ministry. It's never 100% one person's fault. When it comes to relationships, there is always a dynamic, always. So third, again, get competent outside help if every time you try, you fail. And then lastly, I wanna beg you, refuse to allow one person to ruin your life. Refuse to allow one person to ruin your life. For some of you hearing me today, you need to understand that the person you're at odds with, they may never see things the way you see it. They, they may never understand what they did wrong, how they hurt you, how they need to be apologetic or sorry. The relationship itself may never be fixed refuse to allow that person to ruin your life. Why does this matter? Why does choosing peace in the midst of relational conflict matter? Well, if you don't choose peace, 
It's gonna go straight to your stomach. It's gonna go straight to your head. It's gonna go straight to your liver, your stress level, your heart, your blood pressure. It will affect your body and your health. When Jenny, when my wife Jenny is really upset or really disappointed with me and she's in warrior mode, so yes, I'm a rescuer who married a warrior. When she's in warrior mode, the organ, there's an organ on the left side of my stomach and it just starts doing this. Like I can guarantee you nothing good is happening in that organ in those moments. Nothing good is happening, okay? So if you don't choose peace, the conflict will literally take root in your body. That's why this matters. And you're an embodied creature. So man, shalom matters. Peace matters. Why would you want to live that way? Why live the way everybody else does? Why not choose peace as far as your part is concerned? Remember, John says this in John chapter 14, John chapter 14, verse 27. He says this, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. And then 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33, Paul says this. For God is not a God of disorder, but a God of peace. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. And then lastly, 2 Corinthians verse 13 or chapter 13, verse 11. Dear brothers and sisters, I close my letter with these last words. Be joyful, grow to maturity, encourage each other, live in harmony and peace. And then the God of love and peace will be with you all. Choose peace in the midst of relational conflict.